it's always been a question of what makes the most interesting story for me or for uh, my children, for example. Um, what is the story that I want to tell? If I can give advice, if that person can put that advice in action, and if that advice succeeds, will it have a big impact on this person's project? No one in this business is stupid. No one in this business is mean. But everybody has to focus on what their expertise is in order to keep these shows running. Welcome to the Theatre Art Live podcast, and hello. We're putting the spotlight on those who create live entertainment around the globe, the culture creators, the backstage masters. My name is Anna Aguilera. Today I'm joined by James Tanabi, and he's going to be talking to us about the business in the performing arts industry. Formerly Senior Director of Business and Creative Strategy, Senior Consultant in Human Performance Innovation and Artistic Director for Cirque Soleil shows touring in North America, Japan, Russia, and Europe, MIT graduate in space science and physics, entrepreneur and event director, James Tenabe is also a graduate of the world-renowned École Nationale de Cirque de Montréal and has an MBA in International Strategy for Creative Industries from UPenn's Wharton Business School 2013. As co-founder of the international production company 5149 Production, he has worked in Japan, Taiwan, Holland, Canada, France, Spain, Italy, India, Thailand, Korea, Russia, Belgium, Vietnam, Lithuania, Turkey, Cambodia, Uganda, and the United States as a lecturer, instructor, and director, and producer of live entertainment projects. Welcome to the show. That's a, a lot of countries, a lot of places. <laughs> Thank you, Anna. Good to be here. It's also a very impressive um, curriculum. I'm very a little jealous about the physics and science part of it. <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit on your own words about yourself? Sure. Uh, I, I grew up uh, between Minnesota and Japan, and I was always very passionate about the arts, uh, particularly physical theater and, and music. But uh, my, my parents were very practical people. And uh, rather than letting me jump to an arts career right out of high school, they encouraged me to first get a degree from, uh, from university. I applied to many different universities and got into MIT, which is where my father went. And uh, that's where I decided to go and do my studies. But my intention was always to return to the arts after I finished my, my science degree at, at MIT. While I was there, I was still involved in um, acting, in dancing. I got into uh, film acting and stunt work, and I also discovered the joys of gymnastics competition with the MIT gymnastics team. I also had the opportunity while I was there to learn that there's such a thing as a circus school and that there was one not so far away from where I was studying in Cambridge uh, in Montreal. So at the very end of my time at MIT, I made the decision to go all in on the risk of auditioning for this school with the thinking in my mind, if I don't get in, that's fine. At least I tried. And now I can happily go into a, a career in, in, in science and feel like I didn't leave any stone unturned with my artistic passions. But uh, as luck would have it, I was actually accepted. I did the three-year program there and then, uh, and then started working as a circus artist in 2004 very quickly realized that uh, being an artist was great, but I was also very excited about the directing world, the producing world, the artistic entrepreneur side as well. 
And over the last uh, 15 years that I've been in this business, I've had the opportunity to work with some of the largest circus companies, largest entertainment companies in the world, and also to uh, run several large circus and live entertainment projects on my own as well with my company, 5149. That's pretty exciting. So when you got into acrobatics and then you discover the the idea of training and rituals and how we, we get into the industry, do you want to describe a little bit how that process looked like to you and what were kind of the lessons you got from becoming a performer and then that you carry on onto your more um, director or more in a leadership position role? Sure. Well, I think that there's a lot of ritual involved in um, in being a professional in, in the performing arts, and, and that's really it at any level in, in the industry, whether you're a technician, whether you're an artist, whether you're a student, whether you're a teacher. Uh, there's a lot of ritual, and I think of things of just the, uh, the everyday ritual of warming up, training, and then uh, and then and then cooling down after a training ritual. Or if you think about the ritual of touring, if you're touring with a touring show of um, setting up the big top, installing all of the show, doing the first couple of rehearsals, the preview, then the premiere, walking through the run of the city, getting ready to do the teardown, emptying out the big top, tearing down the big top, and then moving over to the next city. Uh, your your life ends up being sort of these, uh, these macro cycles and these and these micro cycles and these nano cycles of, of ritual. And I think that there are some people who who find that a little bit uncomfortable to be sort of going through this, uh, you know, Groundhog Day type of rhythm. But I think that there are other people who are able to really find themselves in those rhythms and in those rituals, and who are able to even see it over multiple generations. If you think about the old traditional circus families um, uh, or the old traditional owners of, of circus companies, how they were able to see this entire cycle of how their how their company was passed on from generation to generation or how their art was passed on from generation to generation. And as I started studying a little bit more about meditation, mindfulness, I started realizing that what I was doing when I was practicing my act as a hand balancing artist was not so different from mindfulness meditation where you you really can't be thinking um, too much about what you're doing and you can't be thinking too much about anything outside of what you're doing. You really have to put yourself in a space where you are just truly understanding what's happening between um, your, your, your body, uh, your interface between the body and whatever object you're balancing on and, and what's happening there. So I think that there's a lot of, uh, of mindfulness that can come from living a life so full of ritual as we do in the performing arts. That's a really nice uh, way to put it. And I, yeah, agree. It's nice. We do have a, a lo lot of rituals. When you're describing a little bit about training, you've also mentioned in some other interviews and uh, comments, you've done some research and how Broadway works. And I think there's like siblings in parallel lines that run in the entertainment. Do you want to elaborate a little bit what you've found in terms of training and how that's different between circus and Broadway? Sure. I think that the um, for for most people, when they think of live entertainment, uh, they're usually thinking of a show like a like a Broadway show. I would say that that's you know probably eighty percent of the people outside of our industry who think of that. They're thinking of a Broadway or or a West End type show, and it's a very successful model. There's there's a reason why people think of those types of shows of the Cats, of the Phantom, of the Hamilton, et cetera, et cetera. But it is only one flavor 
of live entertainment. I mean, you have the huge Cirque du Soleil type shows that are in in the big top shows, or you have their huge shows that are in in residency in Orlando or in Las Vegas. And then you also have uh, the the masters of the arena show, which would be like the Feld Entertainment back when they had the Ringing Brothers and Barnum and Bailey. But they also have uh, the the Disney on Ice shows uh, and and Soleil as well. Of course, they have their own uh, their own business line of, of arena shows, and the economics of each one of them are very different. The operational model of each one of them is very different. The reality as an artist on each one of them is is very different. And where I see a lot of um, investors uh, making big errors is when they assume that the business model and the strategy behind all of these is, is interchangeable. And they're really not. But aside from the economics, if you're an artist, um, you know very, very well that the process of training, the process of mental and physical and, and spiritual preparation that you undertake in order to become a Broadway star is very different than that that you undertake if you want to be a circus star. And if I say it at you know just a very simple, superficial level, what Broadway is looking for in their performers is someone who is the, the classical triple threat, someone who is an excellent dancer, an excellent singer, and an excellent actor. Someone who can seamlessly integrate into a script that someone else has written and can absolutely embody a role that someone else has written for that person. So that person has to be, in a sense, a perfect chameleon. Of course, they're bringing a lot of themselves. They're bringing a lot of their experience, a lot of their emotional weight into into the portrayal of that character. But at the end of the day, um, what's going to guarantee your longevity is your ability to play multiple, multiple roles, which is very different from what we're trying to do as a circus performer, where we are trying to find a discipline that resonates very well with who we are philosophically, physically, and emotionally. And we're trying to go as far as we can in that discipline and trying to find a path that is unique to us. So in other, other words, not trying to be the best hand balancer, in my case, that the, that the world has ever seen, because uh, it's very hard to define what the best is, but rather to be as, as unique a hand balancer as I can be, given my unique morphology, given my unique mentality, given my unique background, and then to try and bring as much of my own authenticity to that performance as possible so that I can connect very strongly with audiences around the world through the execution of that act. So whereas in the world of, of, of Broadway, you're really trying to, to develop the skills needed to become anyone in any situation in a believable way, what we're trying to do in the world of circus is trying to be ourselves in, 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 a, in a most unusual way that can attract and, and, and hold the attention of as many people as possible, both from, a, both from an interest point of view, but also from an emotional connection point of view. So it's two very different ways of approaching the training, I find. And of course, as you mentioned, the, the business model and the, the way we approach the industry, right? So you had these experiences in school and outside of school and you you it, it really is very clear to me that you put a lot of thought process into all these processes that you get into and then you develop them and you create some plans and then how has that helped you and evolved when it came the time for you to have your own company i feel that for me i've made many many changes of career throughout my life and it's always been a question of 
what makes the most interesting story for me or for uh, my children, for example. Um, what is the story that I want to tell? So, for example, right after I finished my MBA, I was working as a business consultant, which is a fantastic job that I loved, and and uh, the financial compensation was was extraordinary. I mean, far more than than you can ever make in in the world of of performing arts. But when I had the opportunity to return to the world of live entertainment in a really engaging role as senior director of business strategy and creative strategy at Cirque du Soleil, I had to make the decision: you know, am I going to leave this? Uh, wonderful job as a consultant and and return back to the world of, of performing arts or not. But for me, the decision was simply based on um, which one of these is going to make the more interesting story that I got into I got into the world of business and then I stayed there because the security and the job and the job advancement potential was uh, was 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 really attractive to me or I took the opportunity to go back into an industry that had formed me so existentially over the course of my life and that I was still so passionate about that I still couldn't stop dreaming about every night, even even as I was working as, as a business consultant. So uh, it's it's a bit intuitive for me, the, the planning process, but I'm also trying to look uh, short-term, medium-term, and long-term at all times. What I like to say is that I have a 10-year plan, but that that 10-year plan evolves on a day-to-day basis. And I think that that's a, a very good habit for us to develop in the performing arts because there is so much variability. There, there is so much, there is so much that can change on a day-to-day basis. But I find that it's always helpful to be thinking about how everything you do in a given day is affecting what the rest of the year looks like, what the next five years look like, and and what the next ten years look like as well. So I try to be um, equal parts strategic and equal parts flexible. And I try and uh, keep exercising both of those muscles at all times. How did it change for you, like the way you perceive the business of entertainment before and after your MBA? Before my MBA, I found myself asking questions that started in one of two ways. Either, why can't someone just XYZ? Or, uh, why don't they XYZ? So there were these questions about these they people that kept coming into my mind. And, and they were causing me a lot of frustration. And that was one of the, one of the things that motivated me to go and, and study a little bit on, on the business side, because it was very easy for me to sort of throw a blanket over everything that was, quote unquote, the business side or the profit side of the arts business and blame them for all of the, all of the troubles and, and, and all of the pains I was experiencing as, as someone on the artistic side. But I knew that no one is stupid in our business and, and no one is mean in our business. I, I just had an intuition that if I understood a little bit more what goes on behind that blanket of the business side, that I, it would, I would probably be able to understand a lot more of what was just a frustrating mystery to me. Uh, so when I went through that process myself, I realized that, first of all, there is no they. Right and and uh, and all of those questions about you know why don't they why don't they just or why doesn't somebody just well the short answer to that question is that it's a question of incentives and it's a question of resources and as soon as you start talking about incentives as soon as you start talking about resources especially limited resources you're starting to ask the exact same questions that economists ask themselves and one of the biggest insights that I had the process of my of my MBA experience was to realize that everything that economists study 
if you replace the word money in all of the early economics classes I was taking, and instead you replace it with happiness or artistic freedom, I realized that all of these economic principles apply just as well to our world of the arts. The big difference is, is that for most people in the world, what economists refer to as utility, which is another way of saying the measure of one's happiness in life, money is a good proxy for utility. So if I take an action in my life that's going to maximize my money, that's maximizing my utility for a significant proportion of the world. Well, for artists, we're not necessarily motivated by money per se, but if I'm able to take a given action and all of a sudden that means that I have much more time during which I can pursue my own passion project, all of a sudden I am entering into the world of economics. So what? whereas money may be utility for most of the world, for us it may be more time or it may be more resources to be able to hire our friends to do our creative projects and the like. And that helped me really answer my own questions, where I find myself no more saying, why doesn't someone just X, Y, Z, or why don't they just X, Y, Z? I can all of a sudden frame the question differently and say, well, what resources do I need to be able to create incentives so that people will do X, Y, and Z? And so I found that it's really empowered me as an artist to understand the economic forces behind a lot of what I was observing in the creative industries. And if you step back and analyze how we run the industry and the common problems we have, what what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think the industry actually runs surprisingly well. Um, if you think about it, there's a, I mean, it's it's been going on for for two hundred years and it's been you know relatively un, undisrupted. Whereas if you combine that with the industry of transportation or or the industry of uh, communications, I mean, they've had to deal with these these shocks over and over again. Whereas a Broadway show in in 2021, once once the COVID uh, wave has passed, will not be too different at its core from what Broadway looked like 250 years ago. A circus show today. Uh, doesn't look all that different from what a circus show uh, at the turn of the of the of the nineteenth to the twentieth centuries looked like. So I think it's gone quite well. Uh, I think that one problem that uh, we're seeing right now is that a lot of money has poured into the industry uh, from people who are not necessarily experts in understanding how that industry works. So if I'm to give an example, For uh, you know, just just speaking from from recent experience, I've, I've I've been serving a lot of different clients, and the story tends to be the same. It can be anywhere. It can be China. It can be Dubai. It can be in Saudi Arabia. It could be um, it could be in in New York. It could be in Las Vegas. It can be in Miami. But basically, you have a huge developer who is developing a two hundred and fifty million dollar uh, project or or a five hundred million dollar project, and they understand that. Uh, back in the 90s, you had uh, Steve Wynn, who decided that he was going to enter into a partnership and support the creation of a Cirque du Soleil show, uh, because Steve Wynn believed that Las Vegas was about to turn towards becoming a family destination, and he believed that if he were to double down on family-friendly entertainment, he would be riding this wave ahead of everyone. And of course, he hit on the magic formula, and Cirque du Soleil ended up being the, the amazing uh, the amazing phenomenon in Las Vegas that it was, um, and a similar story with Las Vegas and Orlando. So a lot of developers understand this story superficially, and they'll say, well, I'm a developer, like Steve Wynn was, and I'm developing this great 
hotel complex or or in, uh, integrated resort complex or shopping center. And so can't I just throw the same $100 million, $150 million of my development to a live entertainment company and then achieve the exact same success? And believe me, if you go to a live entertainment company and you offer them $150 million to create a show on the scale of Mystere or a show on scale of uh, House of Dancing Water, uh, they'll take the money and they'll create the show. But the success of Mystere back in 1992, 1993, of course it had something to do with Mystere. Of course it had something to do with the team at Cirque du Soleil. Of course it had something to do with Steve Wynn. But it also had a lot to do with the uh, the economic profile of Las Vegas as a city at that exact moment in time. And it, and it had to do a lot with what the trajectory of tourism in Las Vegas looked like. And there's very few cities in the world that look like Las Vegas did in 1992 1993 so the effect is is that you are seeing these very wealthy naive investors throwing tons of money at circus projects that then fail not because the circus project was bad but because they're done in the wrong place or they're done uh, they're done as part of uh, the wrong project and that ends up having a very very negative influence on the perception of the value of life entertainment overall because when you have Cirque du Soleil that's running success after success after success from 1993 all the way through to 2007. Uh, all of a sudden, everyone says live entertainment is fantastic. There's there's something magic about it. But when you're seeing that live entertainment is is struggling, and the and the market is starting to look much more saturated, it starts to look like a more and more poison investment that people start to move away from, and they'll start to look at other things to invest in rather than live entertainment. So I think that's one of the main challenges that we're facing right now is that uh, people are starting to question the value of live entertainment, whereas I think that's the wrong question. I think the question is, are we doing our due diligence as, as uh, developers, as investors, in making sure that we're setting up the live entertainment project for success, given the constraints of the project and given the constraints of the market that we're trying to open it into? So basically, before they decide, or once they have decided to open a new show, like, do you do business plan but also your marketing plan and your like who's your audience and all the all the good research and don't just decide that a show is good for your place absolutely i mean one one thing that i i tell people is that i don't know of any case studies in the world where um a live entertainment project was so strong that it brought people to a place where people weren't already going the the key is is to find a place where people are already going and where those people are 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 unsatisfied with some aspect of the experience there that can be fulfilled by the right live entertainment project that's the way that you need to approach this project rather than saying i've got a project and i want a lot of people there so i'm going to put a Cirque du Soleil show in the middle of it that's the wrong way to do it and it's guaranteed to fail uh, the other way to the, the way to do it is to say where in the world are people going and their experience could be deeply enhanced by having a specific type of live entertainment And who are the people I can uh, gather around me to create a team to bring that entertainment experience to that place for those people? Yeah, interesting. I, I think it's interesting to hear that you think the industry is running well and it's going well when inside the industry there's a lot of people that are struggling to make the ends meet on a day-to-day -day basis. So there's kind of a disconnect there. Like it's it's going well for him. 
I think that there's there's two pieces to it, and it depends on where you define it. Because I think that um, if you look back, um, if you look back, you know, several generations ago, um, what we saw as the live entertainment core would have been much more concentrated. Like you would have really had, you know, just those people who were who were performing in the the, the central Broadway locations or the central West End locations. And for me, I, I still think that um, the people who are performing in the central Broadway locations, in the central West End locations, I think that they still are able to um, live on the conditions uh, that are that are natural and normal for those uh, for those different regions. I think the big evolution has been that in the world now where you have a strong off Broadway world, and you have a strong off off Broadway world, and then you have the entire regional world right there. You have a lot more people who are trying to break into the industry. And then whenever you have that, you have a lot more people who are trying to create services for the people who are trying to break into that industry. And uh, you're having a lot of people who are benefiting from that, who are trying to encourage people to break into the industry. And any situation where you have um, a lot, a lot, a lot of labor that's trying to enter a specific industry you're going to find that uh, there are going to be people who are going to find ways to exploit the willingness of people to work, to have them work under uh, less than ideal conditions. So I think that this is one of the big challenges that we're facing right now is not that the core of the industry is, is bad. I think that a Broadway actor is still doing quite well. I think that a Las Vegas actor is still doing right, very well. Um, and, and I think that uh, the the West End actor is still doing quite well, in the same way that I think that the the Hollywood film actor is doing quite well. But I think that on average, the aspiring film actor, the aspiring Broadway actor, the aspiring circus performer is probably finding it much more challenging to make their ends meet because there's many more of those people out there in competition with each other, and that's driving their conditions down. So from that aspect, I would agree that it's much more challenging, but I think that that has less to do with the structure of the industry itself than it does with the number of people who are um, trying to enter that industry right now. What would you say is the main differences between the Broadway model when it comes to business and a more circus-based model? So I'll answer that question by focusing on the traditional Broadway model and the traditional circus model. And the biggest difference is uh, venue, venue ownership. So in the, in the Broadway model, the theater is actually owned by a third party that has nothing to do with the production that's taking place in that theater. Now, again, I mean, this has evolved over time. For example, with Disney Theatrical, they own their own theater. But if we look really at, at what the traditional Broadway model was, all of the different theaters are owned by third parties who do not actually participate financially in the production of the shows that go on in there. But they do, however, charge rent to those shows. So whether a show is successful or whether a show is a failure, that theater is going to get paid their rent. And if the show closes, there's more than enough uh, shows that are trying to enter into that theater to make sure that that theater is going to be able to fill itself in. The risk, therefore, is 100% on the producers, whose job is to go out and to try and find a lot of investors who are willing to throw little bits of money in. Um, and this can be groups of five, uh, five investors. It could be as small as one single investor, or it can be you know, 100 different groups of investors to pull together the money. I think traditionally these days, on average, it's somewhere between eight and $10 million to do a, a, the average size 
Broadway musical, and I think it's somewhere between six and seven million to do the average Broadway uh, play. Again, these are different if they're revival plays, if they're revival musicals, or if they're original plays, original musicals. And, and of course, it's an average, so there are some that are much bigger, some that are much smaller. But basically, they bring that money together, and if they have the right playwright, if they have the right uh, composer, if they have the right cast, um, then they have the potential to make an enormous profit on the on the money that they've brought in, and that profit is shared proportionally between all of the people who brought the money in, and uh, and the royalties between the, the creatives who came in to make that happen. So, in general, that's what's happening: is that the the venue is owned by a third party that gets paid no matter what and takes no risk, whereas all of the risk is is is, is taken by the production team. And if you look at it, I believe it's something on the order of only one out of ten Broadway shows, on average actually makes back their investment, I believe. Um, and then, you know, one out of a thousand or 10,000 end up being Lion King or end up being Hamilton. So it's a very, it's a very high risk proposition. But if you look on average at all Broadway shows, on average, Broadway makes a profit. And that's what has been, that's what's been so key to its sustainability over, over the last more than 200 years. Now, if you compare Pair that to what's going on with the traditional circus model, where you have a circus that is typically run by one family, by, by one person, effectively, one member of that family. They own their entire venue. So they've taken up all of the investment to make that venue. Um, they decide who is going to be the director, if they even need a director. Sometimes that person will be the director. Uh, they're going to cast the people that they want to cast. They're going to find the person who's going to pull together all of the technical requirements they need. They're going to find someone who's going to manage all of the front of house services, all of the box office, and they're going to pay those people out of their pocket. Or they're going to convince a bank to give them a loan. But essentially, you have one person, one family, who's taking all of the risk on this entire show, everything from the tent to the seats to the lights to the costumes to all of the performers to all of the technicians to all of the ushers to all of the people who are in the front and they're looking at that globally from top to bottom as an investment and as a cost and that's a huge risk to be taking but on the other hand that person that entity who is taking that risk will take 100 percent of the success and the financial upside if that show does end up being successful but you see that this overall strategy has a lot of has a lot of differences between the two. I mean, if you look at Broadway, for example, these shows their their objective is to open on Broadway to try and last for one to two years, try and make back their initial investment and make their investors super happy, and then to take that on tour across the United States and then to surf the brand name that they've developed as Hamilton on Broadway in 2017, and then to keep uh, to keep generating more profit throughout the throughout the uh, throughout the nation. Whereas uh, if you look at what happens with the, the traditional big top touring model, they know that they're only super exciting for a, a short period of time. So they knew that they were going to have to keep moving uh, from town to town. And not only that, they also knew that they had to drum up excitement in the next town that they were going. So what they had to do was come up with a venue that was super easy to set up, super easy to tear down. They had to be excellent in their operations to do that setup and take down very, very quickly to be able to maximize the time they were playing, but to be able to switch cities as quickly as possible so that they were able to have an opening night uh, box office 
every weekend that they traveled. So these are just some of the examples of how something as simple as venue ownership and how the financing works and who is taking the risk has enormous implications for the way that these different forms of live entertainment appear to us as the as the paying audience and also how different the world is for us as the directors who are working in those industries or who are performing within those industries. I haven't read anything about this uh, on or on on the things you've written, but I wonder if you how familiar you are on how the concert touring world works and how that overlaps or compares to this other two, which is another big player. So I've actually been working with a client for the first time that's in the live music business. Um, and I always stayed away from it in the same way that I've always stayed away from sports, including esports, because I've, I felt that it's much better to be very specialized in two things and be able to know when I can help someone on those things and when um, and when I can't help someone on those two things. But the uh, particular project that uh, that came to me to talk about the, the live music piece, it was just such an interesting mandate that I said, I'll tell you what I'll do. Let me study up as much as I can about the um, about the live music, the concert space. So basically the huge concerts. So we're, we're talking about, uh, you know, Ed Sheeran. We're talking about U2. We're talking about, um, yeah, we're talking about, you know, Madonna, uh, Paul Simon you know, at this level. Um, and all I feel comfortable saying at this point is that it's extremely different from either the uh, the circus big top model that I just described or the um, or the Broadway model that I just described. In some ways, it takes some elements of both of those and takes them to an extreme. And, and also, they're, they're having to obviously travel under the arena infrastructure or the stadium infrastructure, which is a very different industry altogether. It's, it's not quite having um, a theater that's owned by one entity, and it's not quite having a big top that's owned by the, the company owner themselves. It's, it's, uh, it's quite different once you start looking at Live Nation, AEG, and all of the economics that are behind those venue ownership structures. So all I feel comfortable saying is it's very different with some similarities that are taken to an extreme and with a, with a much higher level of complexity. Interesting. Thanks. <laughs> all right. So on, the, on that same line, t- tell us about art consultancy and what you, like, how does it look like? What do you do? How do you approach that? So there's three main types of, of activities that I do um, with 5149 Productions. So the first is a major live entertainment company is considering a new project type, or they're considering a new geographical region in the world, and they want to understand what they need to do in order to have success, or if, in fact, they have what it takes to be successful in that. So you could imagine... Um, a company, let's call it Company A, has never done a project in, let's say, uh, Western Europe before. And they'll say, do you think that the project that we've, gener- that we've been having great success with in New York over the last 20 years has the potential to succeed in Germany? And, uh, and why or why not? Do we, do we have what it takes? Um, or they might say, well, we've had a lot of success doing um, Broadway-style shows. And we've even had some success doing uh, immersive shows, uh, like let's say you know a, a Sleep No More style show. But we know that there's a lot of excitement around these meow wolf type things. Do you think that we might be able to to create a meow wolf type experience that would have as much success as meow wolf did um, over the last few years? So these are the kind of questions that we help them that we help them work through. 
um, both by looking at what their company is, looking at what the markets that they're interested in entering into uh, look like, and also looking at what the you know what their competitors are doing and and how they compare to their competitors along each of the important each of the com- important skill sets that they need to have. So that's one type of thing that we do. The other type of thing that we do is it's not for a, a, a live entertainment production company, but rather it's for someone who wants to hire a live entertainment company. And what we'll do is we'll sit down and we'll work with them. Let's say it's a bank or let's say it's a consumer packaged goods company or a food company. Uh, you know, uh, Coca-Cola wants to sponsor a huge live entertainment experience in downtown Tokyo in partnership with the Tokyo government to try and rebuild the tourism to Japan post-COVID starting in 2025, for example. I mean, that's not an actual project, but that's the kind of project that they would come to us and say, so what should we be looking at? Which live entertainment companies are are well-suited to us, would have the values that would be consistent with a project like this? And can you help us make those introductions? Can it be one company that does it all, or should it be one company to do the multimedia aspect, one company to do the human performance aspect, one company to do all of the technical installation aspect, one company to do the venue Help us understand how we pull this thing together. So that's that's the other part of what we do. And then the other part of what we do, those are the two most commercial things, um, is that we actually sit down and we work with artists who have interesting projects. And this is much more on the nonprofit consulting side of our company, where um, we'll get a request from an artist who says, listen, um, I, I have this idea, I have this dream. I understand that you know you're you're interested in helping projects that have this positive, sustainable social impact with it, with an interesting artistic point of view. Um, would you be interested in hearing about my point of view and helping me understand what I need to do in order to try and take this to the next the next level? And what I do in those cases is um, I filter each one of those through basically three main filters. The first one is. Um, is there something I can actually do to help this person? Because sometimes they're asking for something that, that I just don't know anything about. The other thing is, is this person in a situation where they would actually be able to benefit from my help? Um, so if I'm able to give them advice, but that I know that they aren't in any way able to actually implement that advice, then I know it, 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 it will be a nice conversation, but it won't necessarily be helpful for them and they'll walk away feeling a bit disappointed. And then the third piece is, if I can give advice, if that person can put that advice in action, and if that advice succeeds, will it have a big impact on this person's project? So what I do is I look at all of the projects and I look at which ones um, I can I can help the most um, that are able to accept my, that will be able to implement my help the most, and that if that help works, would have the biggest impact. And I'm able to come up with a priority of which ones I'm able to support. And those ones I, I help um, on a pro bono or at an at cost or or on spec where um, if the project ends up succeeding then um, they they would they would pay me some some pre-agreed rate um, and if it doesn't succeed then they don't pay me anything so those are the three main types of things we do we help live entertainment companies we help people who want to hire live entertainment companies and then we help um, artists who are starting out who are trying to come up with interesting artistic projects with a, with a social focus and that are sustainable in the long term so those are the three types of things we do that's very cool Oh, there should be yeah, more it's of been that. Fun. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> Do you have any suggestions? And if we were to approach our investors or people in the entertainment, and we we're having this uh, conversations with what we call the money people, what what's a good way to to establish a common ground? Or what which suggestions do you have in general to for those conversations? 
it depends if this investor is looking to invest in, or if you want them to invest in your project, or they've already decided to invest in a project and they don't know which project to invest in. It's two separate things. Um, if they're looking to invest in a project, a live entertainment project uh, in general, but they haven't decided how much or which one to invest in, my approach generally is to try and convince them not to invest in a live entertainment project. And what I mean by that is I try and explain to them all of the risks involved, all of the costs involved. Uh, I give them the numbers about how likely they are to fail because the majority of live entertainment projects um, that, that outside investors invest in just, just fail. And I also know that if they're not comfortable with those numbers going in, if they're not willing to lose all of the money that they put on the table and that and they're still excited about doing this project anyway, this project is probably not one that you'll want to be involved in because you're going to be dealing with nervous money and they're going to want to pull out or they're going to want to micromanage the second something starts going poorly. Whereas if you just tell them this is going to go poorly and that's normal and that's par for the course, it's part of the process. So um, you have to be comfortable with that and you have to feel comfortable letting the people who know how this process works manage your money without you trying to come in and fix everything once something starts going wrong because you don't have the skill set that's required to understand how to address that. A way of looking at it is you have a pilot in the cockpit of an airplane. If as soon as you go into a storm and you start having all types of turbulence, if you have someone sitting in first class who's saying, no, 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 you don't understand. I absolutely need to get to New York. And that person comes in and gets to pull the controls away from the pilot immediately. Like That's not going to go well for anybody. So what you need to do is you just need to sit down. You need to say, look, flying a plane is difficult. It's not going to be smooth sailing all the time. You have to be comfortable sitting in first seat. We're going to keep bringing you peanuts. We're going to keep bringing you champagne. But you have to be comfortable letting the pilot do the pilot's job. So that's the number one thing that I, that I try and tell them to do is if they don't want to take a plane, they shouldn't take a plane. They should stay home and they should invest in pharmaceuticals or something like that. If it's my own project, typically what I will do is I will actually convince them to work with anyone except me first, because one thing I know is that for the same reason, things get challenging, things get iffy. And if you're working with a client or a sponsor or a partner um, who's already been informed of lots of different people that they could have worked with, um, the second something starts getting a little bit rocky with you, they might start to worry, ah, oh, did I make the right choice? Should I have maybe worked with this other company or this other company or this other company? Uh, you basically want to be totally transparent with them and say, look, if you're looking to do this specific type of company, you could work with um, a Cirque du Soleil, or you could work with a Cirque Oise, or you could work with the Seven Fingers, you could work with Machine de Cirque, you could work with uh, Flip Fabrique, or you could work with GOP, you could work with Palazzo, you could work with, you can name them all and just show them the websites and show them the videos and just, and, 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 and explain um, how all of that works and just say, even before we talk about money, even before we talk about anything, which one of these is closest to what you're envisioning your experience looking like? And if they're really looking for something that looks like Cirque du Soleil, well, I can't, my company can't do what Cirque du Soleil does. So I'll say, help me, uh, help me open the door to Cirque du Soleil to have a conversation with you to make that project happen instead of me trying to actually pitch my project to you. But if for whatever reason, none of the established players are perfect for this particular investor or sponsor or partner, um, I could then propose to them saying, well, none of these people may be the right fit. What we can do is 
given that through the conversation we've just had with you, we understand why all of these people are not an exact fit with you. This is what we can do to try and customize our approach to be the best fit possible for you, to help them understand what it would really look like from a creative point of view, from an operational point of view, from a financial point of view. So they'll feel comfortable saying, I know exactly why I'm working with this company. And when things go wrong, I will still understand that this was the right company to work with. So it's a bit counterintuitive trying to go to people and tell them um, why they shouldn't invest and why they shouldn't work with you. But I find that it ends up being a really good way to build credibility, to build authority, and to build trust with these different people. And at the end of the day, when you're looking at a 24-month project, that's what you need. This is a fascinating part of the industry that we don't get to hear about very often. (laughs) So what's uh, your favorite part of the job? My favorite part of the job? I think my favorite part of the job is working with very talented people and very passionate people and and just being able to sort of vibrate next to them and to get some of that energy and, and to and to see the expertise that they bring into the job. I think that the further I go in this industry, the more humble I become because the deeper I understand the experience actually goes. Like I, I recently started speaking a lot with actual venue designers and how they approach venue design. Whereas, you know, before I was always like, well, I know roughly you have a you have a footprint and you have a certain number of, of, of seats and you have a certain rake that you have and then you have a certain amount of the backstage. But when you actually see how involved they are and, and when and when you ask them the questions of like, what are the biggest mistakes you've seen people make when designing theater venues or designing arena venues or designing outdoor festival venues, you start realizing the depth of their experience and how your superficial understanding of it doesn't even approach it. So what I find fascinating is that every year I pick up dozens of new interesting anecdotes from from some of the some of the industry's most well-regarded respected uh, experts and and that just becomes part of my continued education within this industry that's the part that I love the most the other part that I love the most is um, the the framework that we've developed as um, as creative producers or as executive producers, where we're able to go through this ping ponging process of coming up with a really exciting dream, right, and then sitting down with the producer and really helping them to articulate what their constraints are, and then taking those constraints and putting it next to the dream and saying, how do we make this dream fit this, these constraints, and which of these constraints are we willing to invest a little bit in to maybe expand them to try and incorporate some more of that dream. And then pinging back and forth over the course of 90 days to 180 days, depending on the scale of the project and the and the patience of the people. That to me is one of the most exciting and creative parts of the entire project is, is, uh, is being able to actually sit down and say, what can we do and what do we want to do? And how do we try and maximize, maximize that, uh, that result? That's what's really exciting and, and getting everybody aligned, everybody on board, that's, that's really, to me, the most exciting part of the process. If you could change anything about how the industry works or how you're about your job, or if you could change anything, what would you change? I think I would um, increase transparency of communication uh, with everybody. I think that I would also do a better job of, I would encourage people to do a better job of explaining what their incentives are. I think that, a lot of times, you know, you'll have this artificial conflict between the artistic or the creative side in an organization and the technical, the production or the business side of the organization. But if you really understand what they're trying to do, they're both, they both have the same goal. The same goal is to create an experience that is attractive enough to the 
targeted audience, that the targeted audience is willing to spend a lot of money to come and see that experience time and time again, and to make enough profit from that experience that you're able to continue doing that experience over and over again without losing the company, without losing, without losing the money and going out of business. In order to do that, there's, there's, there's a lot of different pieces that you need experts to do. You need the experts who are really, really good at making that experience happen. You know, that could be your creative side, your, your artistic side, and the performance side. You need all of the people who are able to keep it safe, keep it visible, to, to make the music audible. You know, this, these are your technical teams. You, you have the, the team of the stage management that are there to keep everyone from bumping into each other and to keep the equipment from getting damaged, to keep everything moving, moving uh, seamlessly. You have all of the people who are keeping the audience experience around the show to make sure that... Uh, all of the seats are comfortable that everybody can see from the seats that when they go out into the lobby that there's a nice carpet and that they have easy access to the food and that the lines to the toilets aren't that long you have a venue that you need to make sure that you don't have uh, rain leaking in i mean all of these different people all of these different aspects of the experience have to have very specific expertise but uh if we're not very clear what all of those experts are there to do it can all of a sudden seem as if everybody is trying to keep everybody else from doing their job, right? Saying, I, "No, I need to have, I need to have two more artists in my group act so that I can, uh, so I can do three more amazing numbers, right? Okay, well, but if we do that, then the poor person whose job it is to keep the uh, food and lodging budget for the tour below a fixed number, uh, so that we don't end up losing money every time we perform the show." You know they're not going to be able to 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 do their part of the job, so I don't know how to do that. But I think a big part of it is just trying to um, help people understand what I said earlier that no one in this business is stupid, no one in this business is mean, but everybody has to focus on what their expertise is in order to keep these shows running. And I think that that's really what's important is for everyone to see everybody else's job from the other person's point of view. That would be the number one thing that I would change. Where can people uh, see or reach out to you? Your, do you have a website? Is there an email or social media or see what you do? No, you know, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. And that's intentional uh, because a big part of what I'm doing doesn't really fit with sort of the, the world of, of um, Facebook and, and, and Twitter and and, uh, and Instagram and TikTok. I've, I've really focused 100% on only working with people that I know specifically through a very trusted friend. But that said, what I would recommend is if people want to reach out to me, that they reach out to me at my personal email address. It's jttjtt at gmail.com. And I mean, I'm always reading those those email addresses. I think that uh, you know, I listen to a lot of podcasts. I've never written to anyone's email address on it. So I feel like if someone hears my email address and, read, writes, and wants to write to me, they probably have something very important they want to say. So I feel comfortable sharing my personal email address with your, with your listeners if they're interested in getting in contact. Well, thank you very much for your time, for being this trustworthy and open to the industry. And hopefully we keep pushing the proper show in the proper place so we can have many successful shows. Thank you. And I really appreciate these, uh, these questions in this conversation and uh, all the best for the future. Thank you. We would love to hear from you, our listeners, on who you would like us to feature on this podcast or what topics fascinate you. There is a link in our podcast description where you can send us your requests and guest nominations. Theater Art Life provides regular monthly webinars and podcast episodes for free. 
If you have the means, donations can be made via a link in the podcast notes. We would be thankful for any support you can give us. You can learn more about Theater Art Live, the global media site for entertainment, at www.theaterartlive.com. And you can follow us on all social media platforms. We want to thank David Sire for composing the music for our podcast. We are your hosts, Anna and Anna, and this is the Theater at Life podcast.